Section 12 of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Francis Sheridan. Volume 1 continued. 1704, January the 10th. I begin to find my thoughts so much dissipated that I am angry with myself. Mr. Arnold's excessive indulgence will spoil me is always contriving new scenes of pleasure, and hurries me from one to the other. I do not wish to be perpetually fluttering about. The calm domestic life you know has always been my choice, but I will not oppose my kind Mr. Arnold in his fond desire of pleasing me. Besides, I find that by his constantly gallanting me to public places, he begins himself to acquire a sort of relish for them, which he did not used to have, at least his prudence made him so to conform to the necessity of his circumstances while his fortune was small that he never indulged himself in any of the fashionable expensive amusements nor does he now in any but such as i partake of with him i find he is by nature open and liberal to excess i must take care without his being conscious of it to be a gentle check upon his bounteous spirit i mean only so far as it regards myself indeed this is the most material point for in every other instance his generosity is regulated by prudence i am every hour more obliged to him and i should hate myself if i did not find that he had an entire possession of my love sir george hardly ever comes near us but by formal invitation and then his behaviour to Mr. Arnold is so very civil and so very distant that it mortifies me exceedingly. Mr. Arnold cannot but perceive it, but either his tenderness for me makes him take no notice of it, or else not being well enough acquainted with my brother to know his disposition, he may impute his coldness to his natural temper. My mother says he never names Mr. Falkland or Miss Birchall to her. I wish Sir George could entirely forget that unhappy affair. February the 1st. There is a story propagated by the widow Arnold about the meeting between her and her husband, the circumstances of which are as follows. She says, she had dined one day in the city and was returning home to her lodgings in york building in a hackney coach that the driver by his carelessness in coming along the strand had one of his fore-wheels taken off by a wagon which accident obliged her to alight the footboy who was behind the coach had by the jolt been thrown off and received a hurt which made it necessary to have him carried into a shop for assistance that the lady herself, being no otherwise injured than by a little fright, found that she was so near home that she did not think it worth while to wait for another carriage, but pursued her way on foot. It was a fine, dry evening about nine o'clock, and though there was no light but what the lamps afforded, yet as the streets were full of people she had no apprehensions of danger in this situation she was accosted by two gentlemen who seeing a lady well dressed and alone insisted on seeing her safe to her lodgings 
However disagreeable such an encounter was, she said she did not give herself much concern about it, as she was so near home and expected to shake off her new acquaintance at the door of the house where she lodged. And accordingly, when she got there, she told them she was at home and wished them a good night. But the impertinence were not so easily to be put off. The door having been opened by the maid of the house, they both rushed in. Her landlady, a single woman, happened to be abroad, and there was not a man in the house. Mrs. Arnold thought she had no way left but to run up to her dining-room and lock herself in. But in this she was prevented, as the gentleman, whom the servant of the house vainly endeavoured to oppose, got upstairs almost as soon as she did. Her own maid, on hearing the rap at the door, had lighted candles in the dining-room. The two sparks entered with her, but how was she surprised to find that one of them was her husband? Her fright, she said, had prevented her from discovering this sooner, as she had not looked in either of their faces, though there was a light in the hall, and Mr. Arnold's being half-drunk, she supposed, was the reason of his not perceiving sooner who she was. The astonishment that they both were in, and the exclamation that each made in their turn, soon informed the companion of Mr. Arnold who the lady was. He congratulated them both on this fortunate mistake, and saying, since chance had been so propitious to Mr. Arnold as to throw him into the arms of so charming a woman, he hoped his discovering her to be his wife would not render her the less agreeable to him, but that this unexpected meeting might be a means of reuniting them in their former amity. Mr. Arnold, she says, in the presence of this gentleman, advanced with open arms to embrace her, which she, not declining, his friend having again felicitated them on their reconciliation, took his leave, and Mr. Arnold remained with his lady. That at parting, which was not till late, as she would not on account of her reputation permit him to pass the night at her lodgings, he promised to bring her home to his house in a day or two but unfortunately for her he was taken ill in the interim which she did not know of till she had an account that mr arnold had lost his senses the reason she assigned for not inquiring after him sooner was that her pride would not suffer her to make any advances to a man who had been so injurious as to part with her and she thought it his duty to recall her without her taking any steps towards it this story seems plausible, yet none of our friends believe a word of it, and imagine somebody has contrived it for her. The gentleman who was the companion of Mr. Arnold that night, she says, can at a proper time be produced as a witness, as also her own maid, who can testify the truth of this story. In the meantime, this maid is kept out of the way, and nobody can guess at the gentleman, for his name is kept a profound secret. I am delighted at the sweetness of Mr. Arnold's temper. Vexatious as this affair is likely to be even at the best, he does not suffer it to interrupt our pleasures or his own good humour. On the contrary, 
he is the more studious of promoting everything which he thinks will entertain me. February the 28th. At length, the poor Miss Birchall is happily rid of her burthen. A pretty little boy, my mother says it is. It was immediately after his birth at which my mother was present, privately baptised by the name of Orlando, and sent away with its nurse, a careful body who had been before provided for it. It passes for the son of a Captain Jeffreys, abroad with the army. Miss Birchall would never suffer the nurse to see her, for, as she intends to reassume her own name as soon as she shall be in a condition to leave her present retirement, she would choose not to be known by the woman in case of her going to see her child. Everything was managed with so much privacy, and Miss Birchall has lived so perfectly recluse, nobody ever visiting her but my mother that in all probability this affair will always remain an entire secret. My mother says that as soon as Miss Birchall, to whom she considers herself a kind of patroness, is tolerably recovered, she will go down to Sydney Castle, for she thinks herself in a strange land anywhere but there. And would you believe it, my dear, she has taken such a fancy to Miss Birchall, that she talks of inviting her down with her, if she can obtain her uncle's leave. The girl must certainly have some very amiable qualities, so to captivate my mother, or she has an immensity of art. I dare say the young lady will gladly accept of her invitation. It will undoubtedly be a most eligible situation for her. I do not know what Sir George may say to her carrying her humanity so far, as he hates the name of this poor girl. But no matter, it may be a means of preserving her character, which probably she might not long keep if she returned to live with so vile a woman as I conclude her aunt to be. Nor can she have any colour for quitting her while her uncle lives, for I find she is an orphan, and has no relation but him. She must, however, go home for a while in order to get leave from him for this visit to Sydney Castle. March the 26th. I am told the widow Arnold computes the time of her lying in about the latter end of the next month. If it should happen, she saves her distance, as her husband died in July, a little before we went to Grimston Hall. Mr. Arnold treats the affair very lightly, and is only concerned at seeing my mother so much affected by it. For my part, I form my behaviour upon Mr. Arnold's conduct, and as long as he appears easy, I shall certainly be so too. My brother throws out some unkind reflections. He says he wonders the old Sibyl at Grimston Hall did not foresee this, and congratulates me on my good fortune in having my jointure settled on that part of the estate which is not disputed. I really think he shows a sort of ill-natured triumph, even in his condolements, for he generally concludes them with thanking his stars that he had no hand in the match. I trust in God we shall none of us have any cause to repent it. I am sure I never shall 
for if Mr. Arnold were reduced to the lowest ebb of fortune, I should find my consolation in his kindness and affection. March the 27th. My mother is preparing to leave town. Miss Birchall is quite recovered, and purposes going down to the country to obtain her uncle's consent for the intended visit. She says she can easily tell him she made an acquaintance with Lady Biddulph in her late excursion to Bath, from whom she received an invitation, and she is sure he will not refuse to let her accept it. Sir George laughs exceedingly at this plan. He says his mother ought not to be surprised at Falkland's falling into the girl's snares, since she herself has done the same. But he supposes my mother thinks she is doing a very meritorious action in affording an asylum to this injured innocence. I give you my brother's words, for I assure you, as to myself, I approve of my mother's kindness to her and think it may be a means of preserving the girl from future mischief. April the 2nd. Miss Birchall is gone into the country, and this morning for the first time severed me from the best of mothers. I cannot recover my spirits. I have wept all day. Mr. Arnold, ever good and obliging, would needs accompany her some miles on her journey, you may be sure I was not left behind. Sir George was so polite as to say he would escort her down to Sydney Castle. I was surprised at it, for he does not often do obliging things. My mother gladly accepted of his company, and said she would make him her prisoner when she had him there, for she should be quite melancholy without me for a while. Now, Though I should be very unwilling not to allow the merit of a good-natured action to Sir George, yet do I attribute this in some measure to its answering a purpose of convenience to himself. You know before his illness sent him to the spa, he always spent his summers with us at the castle, though he has another very convenient house on his estate. When he was in London he never had anything but lodgings, for which I have often been angry with him. My mother, since his return, made him a compliment of her house, but as the time she took it for is now expired, and it is let to another family, he could not longer continue in it. Mr. Arnold, in the most affectionate manner, pressed him to accept of an apartment with us, which he declined. Now, as he could not, without showing us an apparent slight, continue in town in other lodgings, I believe he, for this reason, preferred going down with my mother. Be it as it may, I am very glad that she will have his company, for I make no doubt of his staying with her some time, unless Miss Birchall should frighten him away. April the 5th. I have been so cast down since my mother's departure that Mr. Arnold's obliging tender assiduity to please and entertain me seems redoubled. But indeed I am wearied with a continual round of noisy pleasures and long to get back to Arnold Abbey. I hope to be there in about three weeks or a month at farthest. My mother has dispensed with our going down to her this summer. She thinks it might be attended with inconveniences to me, and talks of coming to town again in a few months, 
but I shall insist on her not giving herself the fatigue of so long a journey, unless she comes to stay all the next winter with us. April the 20th. My mother writes me word that Miss Birchall has obtained leave of her uncle, and is coming to Sydney Castle. She says she never saw a better behaved young creature. Sir George has taken so much offence at her coming that he talks of going to his own house. My mother adds, he behaves, however, with manners, but I shall not press him to stay. May the 6th. An important birth, my Cecilia. The widow Arnold has produced a young miss. I assure you the little damsel has been ushered into life with all the ceremony due to a young heiress, and her mother introduces her as one whom an unjust uncle debars of her right. Now, you must know that upon an exact calculation, this little girl has made her appearance just twelve days later than she ought to have done to prove her legitimacy, dating the possibility of her being Mr. Arnold's from the very day whereon he took that illness of which he died, and which confined him for five days to his bed. In all that time his servants never left him for a minute. This has occasioned various speculations. Our lawyers say that it is enough to destroy her pretensions, but some physicians who have been consulted on the occasion are of a contrary opinion, and declare they have known instances of children being born even so long after the stated time allotted by nature for their coming into life. It is a very unlucky affair, and has involved us in a lawsuit. Who the person is that secretly abets the widow we cannot find out, but it is certain she has somebody. Every one believes this is an infamous and unjust claim, and the woman's folly almost frees her from the suspicion of its being her own contriving. May the 10th. You cannot imagine, my Cecilia, how happy I think myself after such a hurrying winter as I have had to find myself once more restored to my favourite pleasures, the calm delights of solitude. Arnold Abbey seems a paradise to me now. Lady Grimston showed me a specimen of her humour this morning in talking of the widow Arnold. She said she was an harlot, that having already disgraced the family, now wanted to beggar them, but that if Mr. Arnold did not make an example of her, she would never own him for a kinsman. My cheerful old dean says he is now completely happy, having lived to see his daughter married, while we were in town, very much to his and her satisfaction. I am heartily glad of it, neither am I sorry for her sake that she has left the country. May the 11th. Mrs. Vere is come to spend a few weeks with me, according to her promise. She is a truly amiable creature, her disposition so gentle, her temper so mild, such a sweet humility in her whole deportment, that it astonishes me her mother can still persist in her unkindness to her. But the eldest daughter was always her darling, who I understand is pretty much of her mother's own caste, and makes a very termagant wife to her very turbulent husband. So that notwithstanding their title, 
for he is a baronet, and immense riches, they are a very miserable pair. They were lately to pay Lady Grimston a visit, but there happens such a fracas that probably it may be the last she will ever receive from them. The husband, it seems, though very rough and surly in his nature, is notwithstanding a well-meaning man, and not void of humanity, which had induced him to give a small portion to a young girl, a distant relation of his own, who had been left an orphan. She was beloved by the son of a substantial farmer, a tenant of the baronet's, and had an equal affection for him. But the young man, depending entirely on his father for his future prospects, durst not take a wife without something to begin the world with, for his father had just put him into management of one of his farms. The young lady and her mother, who was a widow and is but lately dead, had boarded for some years at this honest farmer's house, and in that time mutual love had been contracted between the young people. The old man himself liked the girl so well for a daughter-in-law that his only objection was her want of money, but this was such an obstacle as was not to be surmounted by a man who, being accustomed to earn money by indefatigable industry, put the utmost value upon it. His regard to his son's happiness, however, made him resolve to try an experiment in his favour, and accordingly he plucked up courage and went to his landlord. He told him in his own blunt way that he came to speak to him in behalf of a poor young gentlewoman that was his, Sir William's, relation. I have a son that loves her, said he, and she loves him, but I cannot afford to let the boy marry a wife that has nothing, and you know she has no portion. I would not desire much with her, for she is a good girl and very housewifely. But if you will be so kind to give something, to set them a-going a little, I shall be content. If not, you will be the cause of my son's losing a wife, for he swears he will never marry any other woman, and she, poor thing, may pine away for love. I do not desire this match out of the ambition of having my boy related to you, but because I think the girl is an honest girl and may make him happy. The rough honesty of the farmer pleased his landlord so well that he gave the young woman five hundred pounds to set them a-going, as the old yeoman termed it. Though this sum was but a trifle to a man of his fortune, and the giving it was a praiseworthy action, yet did it exceedingly displease his lady especially as he had not thought proper to consult her on the occasion. She was not contented with venting her indignation on her husband at home, but she renewed the quarrel by complaining to Lady Grimston that her opinion and advice were not only despised, but that Sir William was lavishing away the fortune she had brought him upon a tribe of poor relations of his own. Lady Grimston immediately took fire, she could not bear the thoughts of having her daughter's authority of less weight in his family than her own had been, and she attacked her son-in-law with acrimony on the subject. 
his answer to her was short. Look ye, Lady Grimston, you made a very obstreperous wife to a very peaceable husband. Your daughter, I find, is mightily disposed to follow your example. But, as I am not quite so tame as my father-in-law was, I will suffer her to see as little of it as may be. With this he turned from her, and ordering his coach and six to be got ready immediately, with very little ceremony he forced his wife into it, and carried her home directly, leaving Lady Grimston foaming with rage. The altercation had been carried on with so little caution that the servants heard it, and the story is the jest of the neighbourhood. I confess I am not sorry for this breach. It may be the better for poor Mrs. Vere, for though her mother's jointure reverts to a male relation on whom the estate was settled, yet, as Lady Grimston has a large personal fortune, it is in her power to make her daughter full amends for the injury she did her. May the 20th. Mr. Arnold is improving his gardens, and taking in a great deal more ground to enlarge them. I do not express the least dissatisfaction at this, though I own I could wish you would not engage in new expenses on an estate which is now in litigation. But our lawyers are so sanguine that they encourage him to proceed. Editor's Note the following is written the hand of the lady who gave the editor these papers. Here follows an interval of four months in which time, though the journal was regularly continued, nothing material to her story occurred but the birth of a daughter, after which she proceeds. The Journal September 1704 how delightful are the new sensations, my dear Cecilia, that I feel hourly springing in my heart. Surely the tenderness of a mother can never be sufficiently repaid, and I now more than ever rejoice in having, by an obedience which perhaps I once thought had some little merit in it, contributed so much to the repose of a parent to whom I have such numberless obligations. I never see my dear little girl, but I think such were the tender sentiments, the sweet anxieties, that my honoured and beloved mother felt when her Sydney was such a brat as this. Then I say, surely I have a right to all the duty, all the filial love that this creature can show me in return for my fondness. As for Mr. Arnold, he idolises it. You never saw so good a nurse as he makes. Lady Grimston declares we are both in a fair way of ruining the child, and advises us to send it out of the house, that we may not grow too fond of it. But we shall hardly take her counsel. September the 28th I informed you before that Miss Birchall had been summoned home by her uncle, who was then very ill. She has lately written an account to my mother of his death, and that, as she has now her fortune in her own hands, she intends immediately to quit her aunt and look out for some genteel and reputable family in London, where it seems she chooses to reside, to lodge with. 
My mother, in her letter to me, expresses great satisfaction at her resolution to leave her aunt, but is not without her fears that so pretty a young woman, left to her own guidance, may be liable to danger, though she thinks both her natural disposition and her good sense sufficient to guard her against actual evil. Our lawyer writes us word that he has had an offer of a composition proposed by the widow Arnold's people. He says, though the sum they mention is a very round one, yet it plainly indicates the weakness of their hopes, and concludes with telling Mr. Arnold that if sixpence would buy them off, he should not with his consent give it to them, as it would tacitly admit the legality of their claim, and might be productive of troublesome consequences hereafter, and therefore he would by all means have the issue fairly tried. Mr. Arnold laughs heartily at the proposal, but says he is very much obliged to the lady for condescending to give up more than half, when her daughter has a right to the whole, without whose consent he supposes it is not in the mother's power to make terms. I wish we were rid of this troublesome affair, as it must hurry us to town sooner than we intended, and the country is still delightful. London, October the 1st. Again we have quitted our sweet retirement for the noise and bustle of London, but this law business, it seems, must be closely pursued, though our antagonist motions seem a little dilatory. We cannot find out the secret spring that sets the machine a-going. The wheels, however, do not seem to move with such alacrity as they did. Though the widow still talks big, and says we shall repent of having rejected her offer. October the 3rd. My brother is arrived in town, but took care to settle himself in handsome commodious lodgings before he paid us a visit for fear, I suppose, that we should again press him to accept of apartments in our house. I see he is determined to keep up nothing more than an intercourse barely civil. Mr. Arnold cannot but be disgusted with his behaviour, but he is too delicate to take notice of it to me. October the 7th. I am disappointed of my hopes of seeing my dear mother in town this winter, her apartment was ready for her, and I delighted myself with the thoughts of seeing her in possession of it, at least for a few months. But she writes me word that her old rheumatic complaint is returned on her, with such violence that she cannot think of undertaking the journey. Sadly am I grieved at this news, and shall long to have the winter over, that Mr. Arnold and I may fly to Sydney Castle. He has promised me this satisfaction early in the summer. My mother informs me that Miss Birchill constantly corresponds with her. She tells her that her aunt has come to town to solicit for her pension, but that she never sees her, and as she means to drop all correspondence with her, she does not intend even to let her know where she lodges. I commend Miss Birchill highly for this, as the acquaintance of such a woman may be hurtful to her reputation. Editor's Note Here ensues another interval of nine months in which nothing particular is related, but that Mrs. Arnold became mother to a second child. This last circumstance, with a few others preceding and succeeding the event, are related in the journal by her maid, Patty 
after which Mrs. Arnold herself proceeds. The Journal, July the 1st, 1705 Again, my dear Cecilia, I am able to reassume my pen. I have read what Patty has written, find she is admirable at the anecdotes of a nursery. Am I not rich, think you? Two daughters, and both perfect beauties, and great wits, you may be sure. The new-born damsel was baptised this day by the dear-loved name of Cecilia. I am angry with Mr. Arnold. He takes so little notice of this young stranger. His affections are all engaged by Dolly. Indeed, I am almost jealous of her, for he spends most of the time he is at home in the nursery. Our antagonist has grown alert again, and has renewed her efforts, which we thought began to flag a little, with fresh vigour. Whence she derives those revived hopes is still a mystery, but she now says she would not accept of a composition if it were offered. My poor Mr. Arnold begins to fret a little. It now and then makes him thoughtful, not that he says he has the least doubt about his success, but he has been much harassed with the necessary attendance that the cause requires, and downright tired with dangling after lawyers. Besides, they say the cause cannot come to a hearing in the ensuing term, though they before made us hope that it would be at an end long before this time. July the 3rd. I am mortified exceedingly, my dear Cecilia. I find I am not likely to see my mother this summer. I thought I could not have lived so long from her sight. Indeed, it was purely in the hope of making her this visit that I prevented her coming to town in the spring, which she purposed doing, though far from being well enough to undertake the journey. I own I have been impatient under my confinement, as that and my previous circumstances detained us so long in town, and I this day asked Mr. Arnold when we should set out for Sydney Castle. He answered me that he feared it would not be in his power this season to pay the intended visit to my mother. He says he has not been near his estate in Kent these five years, except for a day or two at a time, and that he thinks it necessary to see what condition it is in. I believe I told you that there is a pretty house on it. The place is called South Park, and is that which my mother chose for my settlement. Mr. Arnold, who always preferred Arnold Abbey to it, hardly ever visited this place, and as he never resided there and only lay at an inn when he went down, the house is unfurnished, excepting a room or two, which a man who receives his rent has just made habitable for his own convenience. But that I have laid it down as a rule never to oppose so good, so indulgent a husband as Mr. Arnold is, in any instance wherein I do not think a superior duty requires me to do so, I should certainly show some disapprobation of what he now purposes doing. It will be attended by so much trouble, so much expense too. He has ordered the house at South Park to be completely furnished, and says he hopes I shall like it so well as to be induced to pass the remainder of the summer there most sure it is every place will be delightful to me where i can enjoy his company and have my dear little babes with me 
but methinks two country houses are an unnecessary charge, and more than suits our fortune. I pray God this tender husband may not have a strong and prudent reason for this conduct, which out of kindness he conceals. Perhaps he thinks this little spot at South Park may some time hence be the whole of our dependence, and he has a mind to be beforehand with ill fortune in rendering that retreat agreeable to me, and rather an object of choice than of necessity. If this be his motive, how much am I obliged to him? He has not hinted anything like it. Nor would I dash the pleasure he seems to promise himself there by insinuating the least suspicion of what his reasons are for going to it. If we lose Arnold Abbey and the whole estate belonging to it, I shall only regret it for his sake. End of section 12